Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Osteoporosis is a highly common chronic disease in the United States and worldwide. Despite the availability of effective preventive treatments, osteoporosis is frequently underdiagnosed and undertreated particularly among older adults who are at greatest risk. Today, my guest is Dr. Andrea Singer, Chief Medical Officer with the National Osteoporosis Foundation and Director of Women's Primary Care at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. She will talk about causes and risk factors for osteoporosis, how the condition is diagnosed, and what treatment options are available. She will also discuss how to manage and prevent osteoporosis. So welcome, Dr. Singer, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, best way to start is with a definition. So Dr. Singer, explain to us what is osteoporosis and what body systems are affected? Osteoporosis is a systemic disorder, meaning that it can affect any bone in the body, It's due to bone loss that damages the skeleton, weakens the bone, makes them more fragile, and because of that, predisposes a person who has osteoporosis to fractures or bone breaks. As I already sort of alluded to, the organ that it affects is the skeletal system or the skeleton. And although I think a lot of people think about bone as something that's static, Bone is actually a complex, continuously remodeled living tissue. And as a matter of fact, the adult skeleton is completely regenerated every 10 years. So there's a lot that goes on in the bone. So are there, is there anything else in terms of the body systems that are affected or is it just primarily the, the, the bone system? Well, osteoporosis itself affects the skeleton and the bone. But I think we need to understand that there is a lot of crosstalk between the skeleton, between muscles and the muscular system, and actually between fat that's found in the body too. So all of these systems sort of interplay or work together. In addition, the skeleton is the biggest reservoir for calcium in the body. Calcium is an important mineral that works in many different organ systems to help with muscle function, including one of the biggest muscles in the body, namely the heart. 
So if somebody is not getting enough calcium in through the diet or through external or exogenous sources, then the bone supplies calcium to the body for all of these regular important daily functions at the expense of the bone. So there really are very few, uh, when we think about it, systems in the body that don't in one way or another interact with other organs or systems. Okay, well, and that's helpful because this is sort of what leads me to my next question, which is, is osteoporosis a normal part of, of aging? And I even take it one step further and ask you to uh, let us know whether it's really considered a disability. What would you tell us? I don't think it's a normal part of aging. There are certainly age-related changes that occur in the bone. Bone loss, as we get older, you know, increases, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth later, but particularly for women, the period of greatest bone loss is following menopause, but there are age-related losses for both men and women that continue throughout the remainder of one's life. Ending up with fragile bones and the consequences, which are fractures, which are ultimately what we are trying to prevent, that is not a normal consequence of aging. And so we need to put that in context, right? Physiology changes as we get older. Some of that is under the realm of normal, but to the point where it causes disease and fractures, so the ultimate sequelae of osteoporosis, that is not normal. I don't think osteoporosis itself is a disability, but osteoporosis and fractures certainly cause disability. They cause changes in terms of quality of life. They cause changes in terms of independence, mobility, being able to do all of the things that one wants to do, especially as we age and perhaps get to our golden years and have time to be able to do other things. So the consequences are what is significant, and that's why we care about preventing fractures and treating patients who may have sustained a fracture. Well, and, and again, now you're leading into my next question is, we've heard of osteoporosis as the silent disease. And when you see patients, what are you seeing? What are the physical symptoms and and you kind of alluded to it already, but I, I'm sure there's more. How, how osteoporosis impacts a person's social, perhaps maybe even their financial, their psychological well-being? What do you see in the patients that you care for that, that have osteoporosis? Osteoporosis is often termed the silent disease because as it is occurring, when bone loss is going on, there really are no symptoms. So it's silent. People don't know that they have it or that they are losing bone. It becomes symptomatic generally when somebody has a bone break or a fracture. Now, I keep using the word fracture. Medically, that is often the term we use, but that means a bone break. And the reason I use both of them and want to sort of mention that here is I find that patients often use one or the other. Uh, and they may not have the same meaning to them. So as a clinician, I use them interchangeably, but I will sometimes have somebody say to me, no, I've never had a fracture. I had a bone break though at one point, 
or vice versa. And so I want to be clear that it's the same thing. We are talking about either a broken bone or a fracture. Those words mean the same thing. Physical symptoms sometimes can start to occur as a consequence of fractures, particularly in the spine that someone may not realize that they have, but can cause height loss, can perhaps cause a change in the structure of the spine and lead to a forward curvature uh, that we call kyphosis. Sometimes people will call it a dowager's hump, as uh, we often see it classically in women, but it can be in women or men as they get older. Obviously, a broken bone can, in other places, as opposed to the spine, can readily be seen. So those are some of the physical symptoms. And spine fractures can often cause back pain. Back pain is something that is very common, usually muscular in nature. But if somebody has pain that seems out of character, isn't following its normal course, doesn't get better, just seems unusual, we should always think about the possibility of a spine fracture. So you ask how it impacts a person's social, financial, and psychological well-being. And one can imagine that if somebody suffers a fracture, that makes them immobile, no longer able to live on their own, needs uh, needing assistance either from a loved one or a caregiver. They may not be able to do all of the things in life that they were doing, and certainly if they were still part of the workforce, there can be economic impact. There can be economic impact for caregivers or loved ones because of lost work days when they're caring for uh, a relative or their loved one at home. There can be social isolation if one isn't able to get out and do the things independently that they used to do. Many people end up needing assisted living or some form of assistance or nursing home care, which can obviously impact personal finances. I don't think we always think about some of the less obvious impacts. And so I want to just illustrate that with a short patient story. This was a woman that I saw, saw or started to see when I was a young attending. So picture a relatively new young attending interested in women's health and bone health. And this was a woman in her mid to latter 70s who came to see me. By the time she came to the office, she had already had several spine fractures. So there had been changes in posture, changes in her height. Um, she would come to see me either first thing in the morning or at the end of the day. And for anybody who lives in the DC metro area, uh, certainly pre-COVID, you know that th those are some of the worst times to try to commute and get into the city and get to an office. She was obviously retired. So I sort of said to her, why do you come either early morning or late in the day? Why not try to make an appointment sort of midday, late morning when the traffic may not be so bad? Well, because of the spine fractures and the change in height, she had had a significant change in her appearance. She didn't feel she could find clothes that fit the right way anymore, and she didn't like the way she looked. And she said to me, I come at those times because I don't like to be seen by others, so I try to come to the office when there are going to be the least number of people in the waiting room, the least number of people who will see me. If you had asked me about the impact of her spine fractures on her life and the different aspects or what it had changed, that's not what I would have come up with or offered you. 
And so I remember that story all these years later because this had had a significant impact on her life, what she was willing to do, the social interactions she had, who she wanted to see her. And that's not something that we often think about as a direct consequence of osteoporosis and fractures. I'm really touched by that story. And uh, it just goes to show how we, whether you're as a physician or people who see older adults dealing with these kinds of issues, what's going on in their mind. I I really appreciate you you sharing that that story, Dr. Singer. I, I also wanted to I want to get on to, you know, the who is affected by osteoporosis, but I wanted to at least have you clarify for our listeners the difference between primary osteoporosis and secondary osteoporosis so that people will understand that. Could you help us on that? Sure. The most common form of osteoporosis is what we call primary osteoporosis, meaning that there aren't other known or related causes, but it is something that occurs as the result of a combination of aging, hormone changes, um, part of the physiologic process that, that happens as we get older. Secondary osteoporosis generally means that there is some other cause or contributor to osteoporosis. And we'll distinguish that from risk factors, but for example, There may be another disease or condition, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, that can contribute to or cause osteoporosis. Um, Somebody following bariatric surgery, uh, where they have surgery for obesity, there are changes in absorption of nutrients, and we can see osteoporosis develop as a consequence. There are also medications that can cause osteoporosis, and I know we're going to talk more about this later. But glucocorticoids or steroids being one of the most well-known. So that's when osteoporosis develops either solely or at least in part due to other factors. And you mentioned also in in sharing your story about uh, this woman patient, uh, is it true? Are women more likely than men to have osteoporosis? And, And if so, what might the reasons be? Maybe... Uh, body frame size? Uh, what do we need to know about who is, in terms of gender, who's most affected? When it comes to gender, women are more affected than men. Um, this is tends to be thought of as a woman's disease, but I do want to say at the outset that there is no gender, nor is there any race or ethnic um, background that renders somebody safe from developing osteoporosis. So anyone and everyone can be affected. Now, with that said, it is more common in women, and there are probably several reasons. Women tend to have smaller frames, tend to have uh, lower peak bone densities as compared to their male counterparts, in part because of the smaller frames and reaching a lower peak bone density Uh, We can talk about the age at which that occurs if you're interested in a little while. Um, They also reach menopause, right? So they have a relatively abrupt drop-off of estrogen, which is protective for bone. And so in the five to seven years following menopause, women can lose up to 20% of their bone density. 
doesn't mean there aren't some losses prior and that there won't be continued age-related losses afterwards. But if you think about the rapidity of that loss or the slope of that decline, it's greatest in the five to seven years following menopause. And in many respects, we think about menopause as the defining event, or certainly one of the defining events in terms of the development of osteoporosis. Not every woman loses bone at the same rate, and that's in part why not every woman ends up you know, with the same amount of bone loss or even developing osteoporosis, but men don't have that type of rapid falloff. They don't go through menopause and have that rapid falloff of hormone levels or testosterone in the same way. So they certainly can develop osteoporosis and fractures, but it tends to be later, on average, about 10 years later than their female counterparts. So just to, to verify, then there is a relationship between hormone levels and osteoporosis. Is that true? That, that is true. I mean, estrogen, from a bone perspective, estrogen is protective and is good. And when we take estrogen away, whether that occurs naturally through menopause, whether it occurs earlier, perhaps because of surgery, right, removal of the ovaries, so there's no longer uh, estrogen produced, whether it's due to a chemical menopause uh, because of chemotherapy or treatments for other diseases, at whatever point that happens, when there is that fall off in estrogen, women can lose bone density and therefore become more at risk. Okay. I just wanted to, to clarify that. Um, you did mention that no race or ethnic group is exempt uh, from osteoporosis. So I was curious if there was any that are more likely to get osteoporosis. And I also wanted to ask about family history um, as, as a, another risk factor. I'll start with the family history piece first. Perhaps that's a little easier. There certainly is a genetic component. I'm not sure that we know, well, I know that we don't know about all of the genes and everything that's involved, and there certainly is work ongoing, more is being elucidated. But family history is important, particularly the history of a hip fracture in a parent. That significantly increases one's risk for fracture in the future. So we take into account the family history aspect. In terms of racial and ethnic variations, there are differences. So those who are at or seem to be at greatest risk are whites. And if you think about sort of small white women, those, that's the group that seems to be at greatest risk. If we look in the U.S. at some of the major categories, and I, I use these four categories because these are the ones that are characterized and have been evaluated in some of our risk calculators uh, or risk tools. Um, blacks tend to have the densest bones, uh, reach the greatest peak bone density. And so comparatively, they seem to be at lower risk as compared to whites, certainly. And then sort of in between, uh, at greater risk are Asians, and then um, Hispanics between sort of Asians and Blacks. Um, and obviously, there are many more races, um, mixed races, where putting somebody into a specific category really may not categorize them in the best way. Um, but there are some differences. Some of that probably relates to genetics. 
to family history. Some of it certainly may relate to lifestyle, fa lifestyle factors, um, other comorbidities or diseases or treatment of other conditions. So it's really uh, what we would call a multifactorial, meaning there are many things that we need to consider uh, in terms of how one develops and experiences disease like osteoporosis and subsequent fractures. But uh, that would be how we would, in general, categorize uh, differences between the races. Okay. And I also, you have mentioned a little bit already in terms of lifestyle, and I wanted to ask you, might there be more likely to uh, for osteoporosis to occur in a person who has a more sedentary lifestyle as, as opposed to an active one? So that's part of the question. And then I also wanted to hear more about dietary habits, if, if those might be risk factors. What would you tell us? Well, I would tell you that being active is good. So exercise and activity, weight-bearing, muscle-strengthening activities uh, stimulate the bone to remodel. So we know that being sedentary and certainly the extreme of that being immobile uh, are risk factors for bone loss and ultimately for osteoporosis and fractures. So movement is good, um, as it is for many other conditions uh, you know, that we worry about from a cardiovascular standpoint and, and other aspects as well. From a dietary perspective, some of the building blocks for bone include calcium and vitamin D. So if I was picking out some single nutrients and vitamins, those would be the two uh, that I would mention and that we often focus on. But let me back up for a moment and say that a well-balanced, healthy diet overall is important. We need to have adequate protein, which also helps to keep muscles strong. Uh, we need to be getting in you know, fruits and vegetables. So, so following general recommendations for an overall healthy, balanced diet, dietary sources of calcium are preferred to using supplements or other things, and we can talk about use of supplements later if somebody can't get enough in through the diet. But so dairy products, leafy greens, other sources that supply dairy, lower salt diets, because salt competes with calcium for absorption. And so there are a number of different considerations, but I think they sort of follow the general tenets when we think about what constitutes a healthy diet and would take care of preventing or at least not increasing the risk for a number of different diseases. And I also wanted to just check, because I thought you had said something earlier, but I just wanted to verify, are there any certain medical conditions that might increase the risk of osteoporosis? There are a number of different medical conditions, and we could uh, devote the rest of this podcast, which we won't, um, to talking about you know, underlying medical conditions. So I'll just sort of highlight a few. Um, there are a number of different endocrine conditions. So if we think about um, thyroid conditions, particularly if somebody is hyperthyroid or the parathyroid, which are four glands that uh, are found in the neck and that actually help regulate calcium metabolism. If there is a problem with the parathyroid glands, that can contribute Importantly, diabetes, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, increase the risk for osteoporosis and fractures. And the reason I emphasize that is 
we have an epidemic of diabetes in this country. So if you think about the number of patients who are affected by diabetes, that significantly um, impacts you know, bone health in a vast number of individuals. And in diabetes, part of what we see is it may not just be reflected in the amount of bone loss, but there's a change in underlying bone quality, or it affects the architecture of the bone. And so diabetics will often be found to sustain fractures or break something at better bone densities than their non-diabetic counterparts because there's a problem with the underlying structure or quality of the bone. Um, there are different cancers and treatments for cancers that can affect the bone. Uh, certain gastrointestinal diseases, so celiac disease, which is true gluten intolerance uh, or sensitivity, uh, can affect the bone. I mentioned bariatric surgery before, kidney diseases, chronic liver disease. As I said, the list could go on and on, rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory conditions. But this is where, as a clinician, looking at the whole person and making sure I take a good medical history to know what else may be contributing becomes very important. And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of the program, but we're going to take a short break right now for an important message. We are talking with Dr. Andrea Singer, the Chief Medical Officer with the National Osteoporosis Foundation and also the Director of Women's Primary Care at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Andrea Singer, Chief Medical Officer with the National Osteoporosis Foundation and Director of Women's Primary Care at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. The first half, we talked a lot about risk factors and symptoms and causes. And now we're going to talk more about diagnosis and treatment. But I had one last question, Dr. Singer, about any particular medications that cause osteoporosis, and also wanted to hear about steroids. What could you tell us about that before we go into actual diagnosis? There are a number of medications that are bad to the bone, if you will, and steroids probably are uh, the best known and have the worst connotation because there clearly is uh, related bone loss and an increased risk for fractures for patients who are on steroids. I'm not talking about somebody who takes steroids for five or 10 days, you know, once in their lifetime. We're really talking about ongoing treatment with something like prednisone if for three months or more. And those are patients for whom we want to make sure that we're evaluating them and continuing to follow. A couple of other medicines to think about for women who have breast cancer and may be treated with aromatase inhibitor therapy, that can cause bone loss. B12 
because of the way it affects hormones. And similarly, in men with prostate cancer who are treated with androgen deprivation therapy, okay, to again, change hormone levels, um, that can cause significant bone loss. So those are groups of patients that we want to make sure are evaluated and followed while they are on those treatments. Uh, there are other things, proton pump inhibitors, class of medication we often use to treat reflux, uh, you know, um, or ulcers, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are a common class of anxiety and depression medications. So uh, it's something to think about. Make sure that you speak with your clinician about any medications that you are on, including things that you take over the counter, right? Because there can be interactions and effects as well. Um, those are now sometimes some of these medications are necessary. And then it's not that we would stop them, but we would understand that we need to sort of evaluate, follow someone, and maybe intervene in other ways if we're seeing the consequences or effects of these medications on the bone. So many things to think about as you get older. Um, that said, let's start talking about the actual diagnosis of, of osteoporosis. At what age do you usually see an older adult consulting you, or it could be another health provider, about the possibility of bone loss and, and osteoporosis? When does it really begin to manifest itself? I think typically we tend to think about this in women as they approach menopause. So I'm going to use that rough age of 50, although that's not written in stone, right? There's variability in that. And that's when some of these conversations start to happen. I think though, what we really need to think about is the fact that this is something that should be a lifelong journey. So bone health is important in kids and adolescents because that's when we build most of our bone. We accrue 90% of our bone by age 20 and then much of the rest of it in our 30s. And from a bone health perspective, maybe our kids are right after the age of 30, we're over the hill. I'd like not to think about that. Um, we talked about menopause being the time at which we start to see the greatest loss of bone. But we shouldn't wait to think about taking care of our bones until we're in our 50s and beyond. So preventive strategies are important earlier, and we can discuss that uh, when we talk about what some of those preventive strategies are. But certainly in midlife, patients should think about proactively asking, am I at risk? Do I have risk factors? Do we need to think about testing? And clinicians should think about asking about risk factors that would help determine when it's appropriate to start screening or testing with bone density or risk assessments or other measures to figure out if somebody is indeed at greater risk and we need to be um, more proactive. Perhaps our listeners are already considering what you're saying. Are there different types of health providers that treat osteoporosis? People live in different areas, some more in urban, rural. What what are the uh, types of health providers that, that usually treat osteoporosis? This is what I sort of refer to as the double-edged sort of osteoporosis. The beauty is that osteoporosis doesn't belong to any one specialty. Anybody can treat it. That means that, in theory, you should be able to talk to your primary care provider, whether that's an internist or family practice 
provider, uh, your OBGYN, or a specialist, endocrinologist, rheumatologist, orthopedic surgeons can, in theory, treat it, right? They see patients with broken bones, so they should be able to realize that there's an underlying disease and perhaps do something about it. Could be a physical medicine and rehabilitation provider. So there are many providers who can treat it. The double-edged sword is that because it doesn't belong to anyone's specialty, everybody assumes somebody else is going to do it, and often nobody does. And we're trying to change that paradigm and empower lots of different types of uh, clinicians to take charge and recognize that this is an important disease and to be uh, proactive about speaking to their patients. Um, but you can certainly bring this up with any of your providers. If it's not something that is in their area of expertise, then they could perhaps refer you to someone else uh, in whose area of expertise it is. I will say that geographically, different parts of the country, even in you know different parts of the state, there may be different specialists who tend to focus on it. Um, so there's not any one specialty who absolutely are the only ones to speak to, but when we get to specialists, often endocrinologists and rheumatologists are some that we think about. You know, but I'm an internist, right? I'm a primary care doc who now is sort of what I refer to myself as a PCP bonehead because I do, a, we can lovingly call ourselves that, those of us who specialize in osteoporosis, I try to not have my children call me a bonehead. Um, but that's a good part of what I do. Okay, well, and and thank you for saying that, because in my opening, I talked about underdiagnosed under and undertreated. Uh, so uh, it, it, is, it is very true. So let's get to the actual diagnosis. And what many of us have heard about is the bone mineral density test, the BMD. So explain what that is, how it's conducted, what the numbers mean. So let's start with that. And then after that, we please talk about other diagnosis, uh, diagnostic tests that are used for osteoporosis. Ultimately, osteoporosis is a clinical diagnosis, but classically, one of the ways in which we make that diagnosis is by measuring bone density and comparing the patient of interest's bone density to that of a group of normal controls. The sort of standard comparator is a group of 30-year-old white women. And the scores that one gets if you measure bone density, particularly the gold standard, is central DEXA scanning, where we look at the lumbar or lower spine, the total hip, the femoral neck, which is the part of the hip that generally is most susceptible to breaking, and sometimes the wrist as well, or what we call the one-third radius. The DEXA scan generates a T-score which essentially is the number of standard deviations away from the setting of osteoporosis. It's usually below uh, that of the normal group of controls. So how many standard deviations below the patient's bone density is compared to that normal group of controls? And based on large epidemiologic studies, a T-score of minus 2.5, so two and a half standard deviations below normal, is what we call osteoporosis, that level or lower. But keep in mind, bone loss is a continuum, right? And T-scores are a continuum. 
So there's no T-score that means somebody will absolutely fracture. Although it's a very good surrogate marker, we know that the lower the bone density, the greater the risk for fracture. And there's a better correlation between bone density and fracture risk than there is between other surrogate markers that we use all the time, like blood pressure and stroke or cholesterol levels and heart attack. But there's also no bone density that makes somebody absolutely safe from fracture. So people can have bone densities that are not in the osteoporotic range and break a bone. As a matter of fact, if you look at everybody uh, who has a fracture, the greatest number of people fall into the low bone mass or osteopenic range because there are more people in that range than those with osteoporosis. I do want to make sure that, so this is a very important test. Um, it is a great screening test. It gives us a lot of information about who may be at risk, where we really need to delve into history and other factors. But bone density is only a piece of the equation because we talked about the fact that it's not only the amount of bone that's there that's important, it's the quality of bone. Those two things together contribute to bone strength, which is ultimately what really determines fracture risk. And so it's risk factors, it's history of fracture, it's all of those other things that also need to be taken into account in addition to bone density when we're assessing somebody's risk for fracture. And I heard you say osteopenia. Is, is, explain to us what that is, uh, and, and, and can that then show up as a finding on a BMD test? So osteopenia is the term that we've used for a long time. The preferred terminology now is low bone mass. But essentially, if you think about normal bone density, a normal healthy control sort of being a T-score of zero, or actually at zero to minus one, so there's a little bit of range of normal, and osteoporosis being measured by a T-score of minus 2.5 or lower, people who are two and a half standard deviations or more away from normal, there's this group of people who have T-scores between minus one and minus 2.4 that's sort of what is called low bone mass or the osteopenic range. So again, I've talked about this as kind of a continuum, right? There is a gradation in terms of the amount of bone loss that's there. So there's less bone density than normal, but not low enough to yet have met the diagnostic criteria for osteoporosis. And that's the group of people who have osteopenia. Uh, some people sometimes think about it as sort of like a precursor or a risk for osteoporosis. Uh, I think, again, we need to take it in the context of other risk factors, look at the total person. You might have somebody whose bone density falls into the osteopenic range who is at high or very high risk for fracture based on other historical factors, other clinical risk factors, other diseases, having had a fracture, you might have somebody who falls into that same category who's relatively low risk for fracture. And so the way the field has really moved is bone density is very important. We continue to use our gold standard test to help us both in diagnosis and in monitoring treatment and following disease. 
but how we make decisions about who needs to be treated with what we treat, who could be followed, is really more based on overall risk assessment and categorizing somebody's risk into different levels that includes not only bone density, but taking into account all of the other clinical risk factors and contributors that we've been talking about. Does that make sense? Yes, it it does. And in fact, it occurs to me that what, and you answered my next question was how is best treatment for osteoporosis determined? (laughs) It, It occurs to me, I mean, there are so many factors that you're talking about and that you have to take into account. Um, it's really, it's, you know, you've seen one person with osteoporosis, you've seen one person with osteoporosis, and they may not even have that. And and I think that's a a perfect statement, because I was just going to say that, you know, osteoporosis looks very different in different people. And as a matter of fact, the same bone density can mean very different things from a risk perspective in a 56-year-old as compared to a 74-year-old because age is a very important risk factor for fracture, right? This is a disease of aging. Now, getting older is clearly better than the alternative, but the older one gets, the greater the risk for fracture. And so you may have three women who by definition, by bone density score, clearly have osteoporosis unequivocally. And yet, if you use either your clinical judgment, because you've been doing this long enough, or you use a risk calculator that weights and takes into account different risk factors like smoking, uh, prior history of fracture, whether a parent has had a history of fracture. You may have some uh, differences in age. You may have three women who all have osteoporosis and yet have wide differences in terms of actual 10 year risk of fracture. And the way in which we approach treatment may be very different in those women based on that baseline level of risk. So talk about treatment. Is it usually medications to prevent more bone loss or, or build new bone mass? What, what are the medications that are usually prescribed? Is that the only treatment? What would you tell us? How much time do we have, Cheryl? So let me <laughs> let me start with a couple of broader, broad strokes here in terms of overview. So when we think about treatment, we treat the whole person. And that means that that involves both non-pharmacologic, so lifestyle modifications, dietary changes, uh, looking at calcium and vitamin D, exercise, analysis of fall risk and preventing falls because a fall is often the precipitating event for a fracture. So we have sort of that non-pharmacologic bucket, and then we have the pharmacologic or medication treatments. And often they're both important. In established osteoporosis or in someone who has already had a major osteoporotic fracture, unfortunately, using the dietary behavioral, doing all of the right things are part of the treatment, but they are often not enough. And that's where medications come into play. If we think about medication treatment, there are two major umbrellas, if you will, of osteoporosis medicines. The first group are what we call our anabolic or bone building medicines. They work primarily to stimulate new and more bone formation 
they increase the amount of bone that's there, the strength of the bone, and importantly, because this is the goal with all medicines, decrease the risk for fracture. The other major umbrella are what we call our anti-resorptive medicines. They're a group of medicines that work primarily to slow bone loss and stabilize bone. You can sometimes get a little bit of an increase, particularly in the first few years of using them, but the main way that they work is to prevent further bone loss, and importantly, they also reduce the risk for fractures. We wouldn't be talking about medicines if they didn't show fracture reduction. Uh, in order for medicine to be approved by the FDA, it has to show fracture reduction at the spine as a minimum, and ideally, because in the beginning we talked about the fact that this is a systemic disease, can affect the whole skeleton, except a few distinct bones. Um, we would like it to show not only spine fracture reduction, but fracture reduction at the hip and at what we call non-vertebral or non-spine sites. The, that includes places like the shoulder, the wrist, uh, the femur or thigh bone, the pelvis. Um, so those are the two broad categories of medications. And then under each of those umbrellas, there are other specific classes, which I'm happy to talk about if you want to go more in depth. I just want to give you the opportunity to shape this um, in the way you think most appropriate. Well, I guess a couple things too. I was wondering about side effects because, of course, any medication, you always have that. And then I was wondering again, because the patients tend to be older, if there are certain contraindications, if they're on other medications for other uh, health conditions, which might uh, prevent them from taking the two classes of medications. I just kind of wanted to see, you know, what the situation might be when thinking about prescribing these, these medications. Yeah. So a couple of general comments, because we could spend a lot of time talking about individual classes of medications and types, and obviously each individual medication has its own risk benefit, or I actually like to frame it as benefit risk profile, right? If these medicines didn't have benefits, we wouldn't prescribe them. So we always need to balance benefits with risks, um, but there clearly are benefits. Um, so it, it's hard to go through all of the potential side effects, although I will say, in general, most of the osteoporosis medicines do have the potential to cause some muscle or bone aches or pains. Often uh, that's mild, relatively self-limited, not always different from the placebo group of patients who have been studied as comparators, and muscle and bone aches or pains get are common as we get older. So you have to put side effects into perspective as you are talking to patients. Um, and I think the better informed people are about what we know, what they might expect, the less likely they are to worry if something that will often dissipate and change over time, uh, and often after the first couple of days to weeks, uh, you know, goes away. But what I do want to say is that in general, used in the right settings, so in somebody who is high or very high risk for fracture, the benefits of these different classes of medicines almost always clearly outweighs the risks. That doesn't mean there aren't any risks, but when you are assessing benefit and risk of the medication, you have to also compare that 
to risk of doing nothing and risk of having a fracture. Right? That has to be the comparator, not just looking at the medicine itself, because fractures can be life-altering events, and that's what's often overlooked. So just to sort of illustrate that, I had a patient who I ultimately saw in my secondary fracture prevention program at Georgetown, where we try to see anybody 50 years of age or older who's broken something to try to get them into treatment and prevent a further break. And we know that once somebody has one fracture, they're at significantly increased risk for another one. Highest risk is in the first year or two. Um, and you know, But often they're missed and people don't recognize a fracture as what we call a sentinel event, meaning that there is something going on. And I could give you multiple examples, but this was a woman who was, uh, I think when she had her first spine fracture, about age 58. So still working, very vital, you know, involved with her kids, grandkids, had a full-time job, had a spine fracture with minimal trauma, I think had a cough, uh, you know, from being ill, having an upper respiratory infection, and rapidly had a second spine fracture to follow, was referred um, ultimately was very reluctant to start medications, was worried about the side effect profile, and in fairly rapid progression, had three additional spine fractures and a pelvic insufficiency fracture over the course of the next year, to the point where she was quite debilitated, in constant pain, had to give up her job because she could no longer work, couldn't sit in one position or stand for any length of time. Posture has changed. This is a young, relatively young woman, certainly young from a bone health standpoint, and yet her life has been forever changed by this cascade of fractures. Now, could we have prevented some of them if we had intervened earlier and she was willing to take medications? Maybe. Um, obviously, once the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, it becomes more difficult, which is why primary prevention is so important. She ultimately has been treated and that cascade has stopped. She hasn't had any additional fractures, but I can't undo what's been done. And so my message to patients is absolutely, I never minimize side effects, even these rare events that we hear about in the media, like funny thigh bone fractures or osteonecrosis of the jaw. Um, but in that sense, we're talking about events that may occur in one in 10,000 to one in 100,000 patients as opposed to somebody who's at high risk for fracture, being very likely having a much greater risk of a typical osteoporotic fracture that can be life-altering. So that would be my general um, overview message. Okay, well, I wanted to at least make sure that our listeners heard about prevention. And um, I had about five different questions. You've talked a little bit already about exercise. Just kind of give us an overview of, of exercise. Um, talk about, you know, alcohol. Does alcohol have an impact? Uh, smoking type of diet. What would you tell us? What do you tell your patients about how to prevent osteoporosis? Okay, we'll try to do these in, in rapid fire and give sort of <laughs> succinct answers. Um, so smoking is bad right? Smoking is bad for the bone, um, bad for lots of things. So the answer is people should stop smoking. Um, and clearly there is huge impact from a bone health standpoint. 
also because it can affect um, estrogen's effects on the bone. So get rid of smoking. Um, excessive alcohol intake can also be bad for the bone. That's generally defined in terms of what's been studied as three or more drinks uh, per day. When we're talking about a drink, let's define a pour. You know, it's like a five-ounce pour uh, if we're talking about wine. So size does matter in terms of what we're uh, distinguishing here. Um, probably for women, for many other health reasons, that's too much alcohol anyway. So decreasing alcohol intake or eliminating it can be effective for the bone. Um, we talked about the fact that immobility not being active can be detrimental. So weight-bearing, muscle-strengthening exercises, both an aerobic component, using light weights, resistance uh, by moving one's body against gravity or using bands or other things are important. Caveat to that is if somebody has established osteoporosis, if they have had fractures, particularly spine fractures, definitely need to speak with a provider before embarking on a new program. And we have to be careful about exercises that might increase load on the spine, increase the risk for fracture, and also activities that are high impact or might increase the risk for falling. So supervised programs to begin with can be very beneficial. We talked a lot about diet. Again, just a word about uh, making sure that people are getting in adequate calcium and vitamin D. Calcium preferably through the diet. Diet trumps supplements. But if someone cannot get in adequate amounts through the diet, then we can use supplements to make up the shortfall. More calcium beyond the recommended amounts is not necessarily better and indeed could potentially increase the risk for kidney stones. Um, not worried about the heart disease aspect. That's a topic for perhaps another day. Um, but do it to meet requirements, not to exceed them. Vitamin D is very important. It's difficult to get enough vitamin D in through the diet. There are very few foods that are fortified. With it, we need to be careful with sun exposure from a skin cancer perspective. So most people need vitamin D supplements um, in order to get in the, or have adequate levels of vitamin D. And so that's something that can be added to a regimen. Excessive caffeine intake can be problematic. So you're going to say, what's the right amount? I don't know that I know that from clinical trials. Um, you don't necessarily have to give up your morning cup of coffee, uh, but eight cups a day is probably not a good thing. And I talked about sodium earlier in terms of high salt diets, because that can interfere or compete with calcium absorption. And all of these things are additive. So the more things that are not done well, the more you know potentially detrimental for the bone, the more that we improve uh, and take away, the better for the bone. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time. Just tell us uh, the website for the National Osteoporosis Foundation, best resources, anything else? Okay. The NOF has great resources for patients as well as providers. Uh, simple, www.nof.org. Uh, so I would encourage you to explore the website. There are links to other uh, things, calcium calculators, um, calcium-rich diets, safe exercises. We have um, videos showing safe yoga and safe Pilates, really a treasure trove of information. Um, and uh, I hope that you find that useful. And remember, May is National Osteoporosis Month, so no time like the present to take charge of your bone health. 
but then continue it beyond May. This should be a lifelong process of protecting our bones so we can all remain healthy and active and do all of the things that we want to do. I want to thank Dr. Andrea Singer, Chief Medical Officer with the Osteoporosis Foundation, for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, www.agingmattersonline.com. At the site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, in addition to Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can find more information about that at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.